Hey guys, I'm Caitlin, and I'm so excited to be with you today. Have you guys ever been to a pool? I used to lifeguard at a pool in Fairhaven forever in high school, and this is what I would see go down all the time. Uh, a parent would show up with some tod a toddler, right? Or someone brought a little kid swimming, or if you've just been enjoying yourself at the pool, then you see a family show up. And this is what happens, a negotiation begins. So you got a toddler standing on the pool deck, like shivering, somehow they become like this little seed and they're just like shivering, staring at their parent. And then the parent's in the water with a big smile, they're standing with their hands out, like jump, I'll catch you. And they literally say the words, jump, I'll catch you. And the toddler's like, no, they turn into a lawyer. They start negotiating. The toddler's like, how do I know that you can actually catch me? I've never seen you swim without me, so I don't know that you can actually swim. Or the pool does not look safe. Some kid just went underwater for a while and barely came up. He was sputtering. I don't feel good about this. Or they're like, um, just because you're tall, it doesn't mean you can swim and doesn't mean you can keep me from drowning. So the pool deck is happening. The toddler's standing right at the edge, right at the edge. The parent starts this conversation. They'll be like, I'll catch you. And the kid's like, well, and like kind of starts creeping away from the pool deck because they, they're out of reach. And the parent's like, come on, it's so fun. Look, that kid just jumped. And the kid's like, eek, I think I have to pee. And the parent's like, we literally just went to the bathroom like five times before we got to the pool. You're fine. And then you hear the you're fine thing, and the toddler's convinced they're not fine. And then the parent does one more plea. The parent's like, dude, just jump in. It's so great. And the kid's like, ah, I think I forgot to file my taxes. And I want to go sit down with a warm blanket and eat fruit snacks. Right? And it ends up three ways. There's three ways it ends up. The parent either pulls the kid into the water against their will and they're screaming, but then there's laughter and maybe like, oh, we survived this, and then they start jumping in on their own. The second option is the kid jumps, is caught by the parent, and it's like the best day ever because they learned something new. The third option is the kid starts crying and like sulks their way through the stairs down into the pool, like, I can't do jumps, right? That's how it works. See, the parent is frustrated because they know what will happen. They know that they can catch the kid. They've done it before. They have other kids, like five, three, two. They've all been caught. No one's, no one's went underwater. The parent is frustrated because they know what will happen, but the kid doesn't trust them. The kid is frustrated because they have very little control of what happens after they jump. They have very little control. They don't know the outcome because it's never happened before, and the kid really wants to know what's going to happen, and the parent wants the kid to trust them in the midst of the unknown. This is kind of how God deals with us, isn't it? So you could say that toddlers worship certainty. When I think of the word worship, I always think of the nativity story because everyone shows up to worship baby Jesus in a cradle. You know, you set up your little nativity scene and there's like the angels and Mary and Joseph. There's the shepherds, there's some sheeps because apparently sheeps were there. And everyone's worshiping a little baby. If you, our definition for certainty tonight is certainty is defined as known or proven to be true. Certainty is something that we know. The more I experience 2020, the more I realize that America is gathered around something, we're worshiping something, but it's not baby Jesus, it's certainty. We worship knowing. We worship knowing, we worship being right, we worship control, and that's really spicy as I said that because I just called us all out. I called all of us out. And here's some examples. Look at politics. Look at how hard people are fighting to control the outcome of November 3rd. People are fighting. All the sides are fighting to get their way. They want to know what the outcome will be. Look at going back to school this fall. We have educators that have worked so hard all summer, like they're literally working more hours than they should be, just to create a plan for either virtual learning or hybrid learning. And what does society yell back at them? But how will it work? 
but what will it be like? How will my kids, how will they learn, right? We want to know. And then here's my last one, look at the grocery stores. Will there actually be bleach wipes and toilet paper when I go to Costco? Or will the shelf be empty? I wanna know, I don't wanna go to Costco when they don't have what I need, right? We want to know. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't worship certainty. My neighbors do, my teenagers for sure worship certainty, but I'm fine. Here's our little home quiz to find out if you worship certainty, here it is. When disruption happens, what do you reach out for? When disruption happens, what do you reach out for? So let's think back to March for a second. March happens, we get put in shelter in place. What did you grab onto first? Write that thing down right now. What did you reach out to first? When disruption happens, what do you reach out for? So today we're gonna be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. If you wanna follow along in your Bibles, grab those. Before this story starts, this is the story of the rich young ruler. Before that story happens in Mark chapter 10, there's a story about Jesus welcoming the little children. So Jesus is preaching and teaching and little kids start running up to Jesus and the disciples are like, get out of here, you have boogers, don't touch him. He's so busy and important, we don't have time for you. And Jesus scolds his disciples. He's like, bros, go over there, let the kids come to me. My kingdom is about welcoming everyone and the kids matter too. And then what happens next is this rich young dude shows up. And this is what we know about the rich young ruler. We know that he was really rich. We know that he was well-known in the synagogues, right? So he knew all of the law. He studied stuff. He was a religious leader. And we know that he showed up to ask Jesus one question. So here, let me read this to you. Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Okay, so about two years ago, I had shoulder surgery. They had to fix my labrum. It was missing in action, and so my shoulder would just pop out of its socket. So I had shoulder surgery, and then they put me in this sling and abduction pillow for four weeks. And when I say, like, my arm literally sat like this for four weeks, I slept sitting up, because you can't lay down. I couldn't move it, I couldn't do anything. It just lived right here. And they told me that it had to stay right where it was so the parts that they fixed could heal. But the problem with that is, at the end of the four-week mark, I had to start moving my shoulder joint to regain my range of motion. And even though the parts that they had fixed had healed, all the other muscles in my shoulder started atrophying. They started to die. So like my bicep muscles, my pecs, my back, my shoulders, all those muscles hadn't been used for so long, they started to like shrivel up and they wouldn't work. And it was super painful. It felt like trying to move cement. And what I had to do was I had to go to physical therapy for like a year so someone could help me break up the scar tissue and get the muscles to move past their comfort zone. It was rough. So do you guys know that you have a faith muscle? 
Yeah, we all have a faith muscle, it's, it's pretty cool. So when you take a step of faith, you do something brave, something you know God's calling you to do, and Jesus meets you in that, your faith muscle gets a little bigger. You flex it, right, it gets a little stronger. And, and if you think about it, when we look around at our senior saints in our church, there are some people that have been walking with Jesus for like 50, 60, 70 years, and their faith muscles are jacked. It's like they go to the gym for their faith every single day, and they just walk around like this in their faith, right? Because they've been walking with Jesus in a way that has built this faith that can't be torn down. Like their faith muscle has not died. It is stronger and stronger, and it grows every day. But right now, for some of us, we've let our faith muscle atrophy. We've chosen, we've chosen fear over faith. We've chosen control over trust. But I have good news for you guys today. We don't have to be like the rich young ruler. We don't have to walk away sad. We can choose surrender. We can choose it. It's gonna be hard. It can be today. Every day's a good day to surrender. And it's gonna be uncomfortable. It might even be a little painful and it might feel awkward. But the more you start to build your faith muscle, the more you start to flex it and take steps of faith and choose to trust and surrender, the stronger it's gonna get. It'll get stronger and stronger every day that you use it. Our faith is a muscle we can use and build, but it's also a muscle that will die if you don't use it. So this leads us to our first point, heart posture. Jesus gives the, gives the rich young ruler permission to stop submitting receipts for his good works and start looking at where his heart is. Heart posture, it matters so much. So in verse 21 it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So what is Jesus telling the man to do? He's saying, get rid of your treasure, get rid of your comfort, get rid of your certainty, get rid of control. What Jesus is essentially telling the man to do is let your insides match your outsides. And I love that this verse starts with, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Why did Jesus look at him and love him? Jesus had compassion on this man because he knew the condition of the man's heart. Jesus had compassion because he saw the man's heart had atrophied. The man had always showed that he could follow all the rules, so the outside looked super pretty. But on the inside, he had never been brought to a place of surrender. His heart hadn't been moved to surrender for the kingdom. He hadn't been flexing his faith muscle. The rich young ruler had always been in control of his own life. In Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says this, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, "'you hypocrites. "'You are like whitewashed tombs, "'which look beautiful on the outside, "'but on the inside are full of the bones "'of the dead and everything unclean. "'In the same way, on the outside, "'you appear to be people as righteous, "'but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness.'" Dude, Jesus just threw down. (laughs) So what Jesus is saying in this verse to the Pharisees is he's like, hey friends, I've never called you to perfect your outer appearance, but on the inside be a hot mess. I didn't call you to live like that. He never calls us to be like whitewashed tombs, right? Yet our culture loves to add a fresh layer of paint on the outside of something and then be a hot mess on the inside. We love to live as though we've been fixed up even though our heart hasn't been brought to a posture of surrender or grace hasn't gotten there yet. So I have a couple examples. Christmas cards. What do you get in December from families like all over the country? Really shiny, sparkly Christmas cards where everyone's wearing matching colors and everyone's hair's done and it doesn't, you can't tell if people cried beforehand, but it could have happened. But what you see is perfection. But what would your Christmas card look like on your average Monday night dinner? Maybe not look the same, right? We like fixing the outside. Here's another one. Facebook versus real life. What happens on Facebook and what you see posted all over Facebook isn't someone's real life. That's not reality, but what do we do? American culture posts it anyway and says, this is my life. Look at me. 
We love fixing the outside. Jesus knew what was on the inside of the man. He knew the rich young ruler wanted to find salvation by doing, but Jesus invites us to spend eternity with him by dying, dying to ourselves and living in surrender. I'm gonna read that again. Jesus knew what was on the inside of the rich young ruler's heart. He knew that that guy wanted to find salvation by doing. He wanted to work his way into the kingdom. But Jesus invites us to spend eternity with him by dying. We have to die to ourselves and live in surrender. Jesus invites all of us to have a heart posture of surrender. So what posture is your heart in today? What posture is your heart in today? All right, when I was in college, I was just like the rich young ruler you know, ballin'. I ate a lot of Top Ramen. I had a Vespa scooter that went 60 miles per hour, but it sounded like this, and I just like cruised to campus. And I loved it because it got 100 miles per gallon, and I only had to fill up the tank like every two weeks. Okay, so it turns out I wasn't rich like the rich young ruler, but I was young, and I wanted to control what I got to do with my life like the rich young ruler. So I wanted to study graphic design because I love to paint and do art and make graphics, hoodies, sweatshirts, you know, all that jazz. I want to do that. I was like, oh, I'm really good at this. This is what I'll do with my life. And then it turns out that, like, God told me he might have had other plans. And can you believe that the God of the universe that, like, handcrafted me, created me, also handcrafted a plan for my life that he would like me to follow? Like, the audacity. So then I started arguing with God like young Christian Caitlin arguing with God. I was like, so your plan doesn't make sense. I felt him calling me to switch my major to nonprofit leadership. So I was thinking, I was like, okay, I'm going into a bunch of debt to get a degree and nonprofits make no money. So your plan must be wrong. Think about, like, can you look at it again? So I told God he had been wrong. And then actually it got to the point where I was like, okay, what if you just look in my file one more time? Like Caitlin Holmgren, born in 92, just see if like a sticky note is stuck at the bottom and you missed it, maybe there's a different plan for me. I negotiated with God, and it was mainly me telling him that he couldn't be right, right? But finally I got to a place where I realized like, okay, I'll surrender. I'm gonna change my major, but I'm never gonna work at a church. This was my argument. You can have, you can have the direction of my life, but you don't get to pick the destination. And one thing I hadn't understood about the gospel yet is leads us to our second point. Jesus' love doesn't negotiate. Jesus' love does not negotiate. It doesn't. So here's, we'll jump back into the story. Verse 17 says this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What the man is asking is, how will I get to heaven? What one thing do I need to do to get to heaven? What is the price gonna cost me? What will the price be? Breaking news, you guys ready? Lean in, listen in for this. Love costs you everything. Love costs you everything. Following the rules isn't what Jesus was concerned about, right? Jesus isn't concerned that the rich young ruler, his love of his treasure, him holding onto his treasure is preventing him from getting to a place of surrender. The guy didn't wanna give up his treasure, right? So that's like your things, your car, your house, your money, your dog. Taco Tuesday, I don't know. He didn't want to give up his stuff. But if you really think about it, the guy didn't want to give up his comfort. He didn't want to give up the certainty of what his life looked like. He was rich. He got to do whatever he wanted. He didn't want to give that up. He didn't want to give up control over his future. When Jesus said, sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me, he, that means that you have nothing and you're following a rabbi around. Was that going to be comfortable? No. The man didn't want to get to a place of surrender. Um, and it's kind of like me, when I was in college, I didn't want to give up my plan. I wanted to control where I got to work and what my life would feel like and what resources I would have, and I didn't want to give it up. 
So in the Passion Translation, verses 10, 20, um, Mark 10, 24 through 25 says this. I love the Passion Translation. It says, children, it is next to impossible for those who trust in their riches to find their way into God's kingdom realm. It is easier to stuff a rope through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter into God's kingdom realm. Okay, so before everyone gets all sweaty, if you have a big fat bank account, Jesus is not saying that money or wealth makes you a bad person. He's not saying that. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's next to impossible for those who trust in their riches to experience the kingdom of God. So what if we trade the word riches for our three favorite words of 2020? Comfort, control, and certainty. What if we swap those in? That verse would sound like this. It's next to impossible for those who trust in their control to find their way into God's kingdom. It's next to impossible for those who trust in their comfort to find their way into God's kingdom. And then the last one that would sound like this. It's next to impossible for those who trust in their certainty to find their way into God's kingdom. That's heavy, right? We can't haggle our way into the kingdom of God. You can't barter your way in. We can't offer up our bank accounts, but hold on to our friend groups or our career. We can't give God our past, but hold on to our future. Love costs everything. It will cost you all you have because it cost Jesus all he had on the cross. We can't give God our relationships but hold on to our comfort. Since Jesus paid it all on the cross for me and for you, we are called to surrender all to receive salvation. The cost of following Jesus is always surrender, always. And what's so cool about this story is Jesus instructs us that for all of us, the cost, we have to surrender what we treasure most, right? We have to surrender what we treasure most. So that leads us to our second question of today. What do you treasure most right now? What are you holding on to? Okay, as you guys know, um, I now work here at Cornwall. I get to work with teenagers, and you know, they have their TikTok dances, and they wear tie-dye, and they have holes in their jeans, and they listen to loud music, and they kind of think parents don't know what they're talking about. You know, teenagers, I love them. So teenagers are trying to figure out who they are, and they don't want to be told who they are by adults right? Because they're trying to define who they are as an adult. So when an adult's like, you're wrong, or this is what you're like, teenagers are like, nah, bro. Mm. Don't throw shade at me. Take that somewhere else. So teenagers are trying to figure out who they are. There are moments where teenagers get a taste of control, and then there's moments where sometimes mistakes are made, and they've realized they've lost control of the situation, and then they're brought to a place of surrender. Kind of sounds familiar, right? So when I was in high school, um, I was going to senior prom, and I was driving my mom's pretty brand new car over to my friend's house to get my hair and makeup done. And I got my hair and makeup done, and then I was at a stop sign in a neighborhood, looked down the hill, looked up the hill, coast was clear, proceeded to start driving 25 miles per hour through this neighborhood, and I saw a flash of yellow, so I slammed on the brakes, and I clipped an old yellow slug bugs bumper. Like, they were going 60 through the neighborhood, which I know wasn't my fault, but I got in a car accident on prom. Are you guys hearing this? So I, I wrecked my mom's car, and it wasn't just like we dented the bumper. My mom's bumper was like ripped, and we had to duct tape it back together. Like that's the state of what was going on. So I finished driving myself home, and I had this moment where I could control the situation and tell my parents I wrecked the car after prom, or I could turn myself in because I really had lost control of the situation and I messed up real bad. Like the weight of being an adult was too heavy for me at the time, and so what should I do? So I was wrestling with it, And what ended up happening was I had this moment where I realized I needed to surrender and acknowledge that I no longer had control. I was in over my head. So I waited for my parents to pull up to the house, and before they even got out of my dad's truck, I started yelling at them, like, I crashed your car, the bumper's ruined, I'm sorry, I won't go to prom. And my mom was like, what? 
And of course, they met me with grace, and I still ended up going to prom. But that day, I realized, and I think teenagers realize this as they grow up, that they get a taste of what control and what surrender feels like. But if you're walking with Jesus for the rest of your life, you have to taste surrender more days than you taste control. And so teenagers are actually learning to set down something that culture tells them to pick up as they become adults. So I want you guys to think back to when you were a teenager. What did control feel like? And what did surrender feel like? What did control feel like? And what did surrender feel like? This jumps into our third point for the sermon. What is in your hands? What are you holding on to? Verse 26 says this. The disciples were more, sorry, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who can be saved? So this is what's funny about the disciples. They're asking Jesus who can be saved. And the fact that disciples ask this question is because they just saw a rich, powerful man walk away without salvation. Rich, powerful men get what they want and they have for like all of culture, right? So how could this one man not get the one thing he wanted? He asked Jesus how to get salvation and he walked away sad. The disciples' minds were blown. They were woke. They were shook. They didn't get it. So they were starting to ask like, who could even get into heaven? I'm sure they're like, can we get into heaven? We're not as rich as that guy. Like who's gonna get there? And the disciples missed the one point. The disciples missed the fact that the more things people have to hold on to in their lives, the more control of things you have, the harder it is to let go of all those things. The disciples thought Jesus was saying that only a few people can get saved. But what Jesus was telling the whole world was this. Few people will give up their treasure for the gospel. Few people will give up their treasure for the gospel. Have you guys ever seen that? Have you seen this happen? Few people will give up control and comfort and certainty for the kingdom of God. So I saw this quote, Brene Brown retweeted it from one of her author friends, Elizabeth Gilbert, and it says this. You are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. That's spicy, isn't it? Okay, I'll tell you what this quote means to me, okay? The sooner I get to surrender, the sooner I get to a place of surrender, the sooner I run to the cross and set something down, is the sooner that I can let go of something that Jesus did not design for me to carry. So the sooner I set it down, the sooner I leave it at the cross, is the sooner I get to experience the freedom of the kingdom of God. The sooner I get to walk and follow Jesus without having to carry any burdens. And sometimes things don't work out, right? Sometimes I don't understand God's plan. So instead of fighting to hold on, instead of striving against, instead of engineering outcomes, instead of feeling like I have to hold on tight or everything's gonna get ruined, when you look down in those moments, instead of having hands full of anxiety, I can just set it down. I can surrender because I'm not in control, but God is. So I think if you think about the last six months, like since March, 2020 has stripped away a lot of things. And I know people have lost their jobs. I know people are struggling, incomes, retirements. What do you do with kids out of school? Like it's, it's been a mess. So I'm not saying it's been easy, but 2020 has stripped away what control we thought we had. We thought we had so much control and then the reality shifted and it turns out we didn't. We refuse to surrender our treasure to God because our greatest treasure right now in 2020, it is control. It is certainty. The gospel reveals a beautiful thing though. It reveals that we weren't designed to be in control. We weren't designed to hold on to that because when we do, we just have hands full of anxiety like that quote said. The gospel reveals that we were designed to follow Jesus. So I want you guys to look down at your hands right now. Yeah, you're on a computer screen. Maybe you're holding your phone. Use one hand, don't drop the phone. Look at your hands. What's in your hands? Is it control? 
Is it anxiety? Or are you in a place of surrender? What's in your hands? All right, fam, we gotta, we gotta end on a good note. I got good news. Are you ready for some good news of the gospel? Verse 27, this is what Jesus says to the disciples. Are you ready? Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Did you guys hear that? I'll read it again. Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Surrender is possible. Surrender is possible, and it's possible because grace is real. Grace is real. You can have some today. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what I do for students is I break down the verse. Are you guys ready? So the first part of the verse, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't be like the world. I know that one's easy. Don't be like the world. Be different. We're supposed to live different. The second chunk of the verse says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let surrender change your mindset daily. Let surrender change your mindset daily. And then the last part of the verse says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know what God's saying with that? When you set down control, you will be able to see and receive what God has for you. When you set down control, you have open hands to receive from God. So we don't have to buy what the world is selling. We can ask God to help us see his will and ask him to give, turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The world says you're gonna feel better if you're in control, but as Dwight Schrute says, that's false. False, you're wrong. Jesus calls us to surrender. The world says to have control, but God calls us to surrender because he's in control. So we have to start flexing our faith muscle again. We have to start choosing surrender and setting certainty at the foot of the cross each day. We have to stop negotiating with God. We have to start reaching out for God in the midst of this disruption, the unknown, this stress. We can reach out to this God we have because he is a, we serve a God who comforts. We serve a God who is in control. And we serve a God who loves us regardless of how uncertain our circumstances look. That's the God we serve. So if you think about all these little stories I told you, we have a God who will catch us when we take a jump of faith into the shallow end or the deep end of the pool. We can jump because he'll catch us. We have a God who has compassion for our atrophied hearts. Just like he looked at the rich young ruler and was moved because the man hadn't surrendered yet, God wants us to be moved to surrender as well. We have a God who's willing to help us break up that scar tissue and use our faith muscle again. And because of grace, we have a God who won't, let it, who won't negotiate his love, which is actually really beautiful because since he went all in on the cross, he invites us to go all in on surrender every single day just to follow him. If he would have went half in, then we would be constantly negotiating salvation, but he paid it all, he went all in, and he invites us to do the same. So to end out our sermon for today, I want you guys to put your hands out like this again. This is a posture of surrender. This is the best way to live your life because if you're living your life like this, you're not holding on to anything, are you? You're coming before the king, ready to receive. So here's our challenge. What if for the rest of September, we started our day by sitting before God and praying this? Pray this with me. Lord, give me a heart posture of surrender. You are in control and I give you this day. I surrender control because I know you have a plan. Help me to die to myself and live for you. Amen. All right, guys, I would just like to pray for you before we head out for today. 
Lord, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you call us to walk in surrender. I thank you that your love is enough to catch us when we feel like we're gonna fail and fall. Help us to be brave this week. Help us to just start our mornings with a heart posture of surrender. Help us to live and love for you. Be with us and guide us and bless us, Lord. In your precious name I pray, amen.